I think the central idea is that machines are taking on cognitive capability. They're beginning to exhibit true brain power. I mean, definitely not something on the level of human level intelligence yet, but clearly machines are in a limited sense, beginning to think. They are solving problems. They are making decisions. And most importantly, we've got algorithms that are truly learning. And that's really quite new. And what it really means, I think, is that technology is finally beginning to compete directly with what you might think of as our core competency, right? The thing that really sets human beings apart. That's our ability to learn to solve problems, to adapt, and so forth. And, and machines are beginning to do that. And I think that that's going to ultimately create a very different outcome than what we've seen in the past. Hey, guys, I want to do a quick shout out to today's show sponsor, Send Pro Online by Pitney Bowes, an awesome company that helps you ship something from anywhere without having to go to the post office. You save time and money using their software, and you can get a free 10-pound scale and a free 30-day trial of the service, which starts as low as four ninety nine a month when you go to pb.com slash angel. That's pb.com slash angel. Welcome to The Syndicate, the podcast about the investors behind the overnight successes. It takes years, it takes money. On this show, we interview the top angel investors, venture capitalists, and startups to share what it really takes to succeed with startup investing. I'm your host, Matt Ward, and I'm a serial entrepreneur and angel investor. And I believe startups are the future, and angel investing is the best way to build real true wealth. To find out more about us, please visit thesyndicate.vc. But now, let's get on with the show. Hey guys, just a quick warning before we jump into this. There's a couple of really weird times during the episode where Martin's voice turns into like the voice of a devil and it just booms and suddenly we have an evil character from the netherworld come to attack. They're very short little clips. They're really funny and no matter what we tried to do, we could not take them out. So I give you the one, the only, the infamously evil Martin Ford. So you've been described as a lot of things, an author, a futurist, and the first big question I had for you is, is this time different? I believe it is. Um, and I say that with some caution because, of course, that's been said many times. I mean, people in the past, going all the way back 200 years to the Luddite uh, revolts in England, have worried about the impact of technology and the potential to create unemployment and, and to make dis jobs disappear. And since then, it's come up lots of times. I mean, in my book, I talk about the Triple Revolution Report, which happened back in the 1960s. And, and this was a report um, put out by a very prominent group of people, included Nobel laureates. And it argued that uh, the whole economy was going to be disrupted and that millions of people were going to be put out of work by industrial automation. And of course, that didn't happen. So it's, you know, it's, it's seemingly... Um, sort of a, a fool's errand to always say this time is different, but I think eventually it will be t different. And I think that we're finally at the point now where the technology is really here to be incredibly disruptive to both the job market and the economy in general. Just because you flipped a coin a hundred times in a row doesn't mean, say anything about what the next turn of the coin will be, essentially. And, and, you know, things going in a straight line until they can't continue anymore, right? I mean, um, just because something's always been true in the past doesn't mean it will always be true in the future. I definitely have some of the same fears as you. Why is this time different? What makes intelligence and neural nets something that can threaten or could possibly threaten human existence, productivity, etc.? 
I think the central idea is that machines are taking on cognitive capability. They're beginning to exhibit true brain power. I mean, definitely not something on the level of human level intelligence yet, but clearly machines are in a limited sense, beginning to think. They are solving problems. They are making decisions. And most importantly, we've got algorithms that are truly learning. And that's really quite new. And what it really means, I think, is that technology is finally beginning to compete directly with what you might think of as our core competency, right? The thing that really sets human beings apart. That's our ability to learn to solve problems, to adapt, and so forth. And, and machines are beginning to do that. And I think that that's going to ultimately create a very different outcome than what we've seen in the past. Because chimpanzees aren't coming to steal our jobs, but if they had an economy, then the planet of the apes gets overthrown eventually. Exactly, right. Yeah. The, so, so um, and, and the thing is that machine intelligence is, you know, advancing exponentially and it's still far short of what human beings can do. But in narrow applications, it's already super superhuman, right? I mean, you can. There are already examples of of algorithms that can outperform medical doctors at looking at uh, medical images and, and discovering cancer, for example. So, in very narrow applications, machines already outperform us, and of course, it's going to get broader and broader going forward. How much of the fear is the flywheel of a takeoff intelligence burst? Uh, In terms of self-improvement so fast. Right. I mean, I I kind of view that as a separate issue. I mean, my primary focus has been on the impact on the the job market, the economy, on inequality in, in, you know, the next couple of decades. And I think what we're talking about there is improving narrow artificial intelligence. In other words, machines that can do things that are fundamentally routine uh, repetitive and, and predictable. In other words, the, the kinds of jobs that a great many people have where they come to work and they do the same kinds of basic things over and over again. Computers and algorithms are clearly going to be able to do that. The, the question that's a bit further out is, can we really build a machine that has human-level intelligence? In other words, a, you know, an AI system that, that exhibits the capability to think broadly in a general sense, um, what's called artificial general intelligence. And I think that that's something that eventually is likely to happen. Uh, most computer scientists that I've talked to believe that eventually it will be happen. But there's a lot of a dis- disagreement as to how far out it is. Like in my most recent book, Architects of Intelligence, I talked to 23 of the really smartest people in the world. You know, the people that that um, are really sort of leading the charge in this area. In fact, three of the people I interviewed just won the Turing Award, which is basically the the Nobel Prize of of computer science for their work in you know, on deep learning, on, on the hottest area of artificial intelligence. And what I found talking to those people is there's a wide variation in terms of how close they think that is. You know, Ray Kurzweil, for example, said it's 10 years out. Uh, Rodney Brooks said it's 200 years, almost 200 years away. So there's, it's unclear how soon that will happen. But a lot of people believe that when we do have a system that achieves human-level intelligence, that it will fairly soon become superhuman. And that's where we get into the discussion of this sort of recursive loop where it's self-improving and it becomes superhuman perhaps very rapidly. And and that might happen over a period of years or in some scenarios that have been proposed, it might happen in, in seconds, right? That That this system kind of improves its own code and gets smarter and smarter. And pretty soon you've got an entity that 
is so much smarter than us that it makes us look like uh, an insect, you know, rel- relative to its intelligence. And then, of course, that's a real problem. Obviously, that's very speculative. I think it's not impossible. It's something that uh, I think should be on our radar in terms of being a legitimate concern. But I also think it's something that is definitely not an immediate concern and it's not something that should distract us from the practical implications of, of advancing AI and, and robotics over the coming decades, you know, which is really going to be the impact of narrow artificial intelligence. Yeah, because even among humans, there's a very wide variation in terms of intelligence. But even if you can only get to the lower 20%, you're still replacing a massive amount of labor because how much of human labor is just menial labor that requires very little, if any, cognitive function? That's I wouldn't, I wouldn't use the word menial so much because remember go back to the example i gave of the the doctor the radiologist right that's looking at medical scans for for human being that takes lots of intelligence and in years and years and years of training right college and then medical school and then residency i i mean it's like 13 years of 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 training after high school i think so it's definitely not menial but what it is is it's routine right it's it's predictable and so that's something where you're, I think, going to definitely see algorithms outperforming people in, in probably the not-too-distant future. So you can kind of imagine that radiology, a tremendously skilled, high-paid, high-status job, could, to a large extent, be automated you know, in the foreseeable future. On the other hand, though, think of the person that cleans your hotel room or you know, makes up your room. Basically, this is a job that doesn't require any formal training at all. And yet it requires lots of dexterity, lots of visual perception, the ability to engage with a very unpredictable environment. This is a job that would require a science fiction robot, right? Something like C-3PO from Star Wars or something. I don't think we're going to see that anytime soon at all. So it's very likely that the doctor's job is going to get automated before the, the, the maid or the person cleaning the hotel room. So it's really important to keep that in perspective, that it's not just about whether a job is low-skilled or menial or whatever you want to call it. It's really about the nature of the work. Is it fundamentally routine and predictable? And if it is, then it's going to be highly susceptible to automation via artificial intelligence and robotics. And then the question is, what do we do? And what do we do, especially considering policymakers seem to be incredibly clueless? Well, you know, I think that ultimately, it's going to require us to really rethink sort of our value proposition in terms of how the economy works. I mean, the way it works now is that if you want to survive in the market economy and have an income and not be living on the street, you need to to do something that generates money, right? You need a traditional job or you need to start a business that generates enough money to do that. Or if you're very lucky, I guess you could be independently wealthy. But for most of us, you know, we rely on the value of our labor one way or another. And uh, we may be entering a future where the value of that labor is not going to be sufficient for a significant fraction of our workforce to have a decent lifestyle. And then we have to rethink things. And I think that ultimately, we're going to have to find a way to basically decouple income from traditional forms of work. I think the best way to do that is probably some form of universal basic income. And uh, this is, in one sense, a very radical idea. Obviously, the idea that you kind of give people money no matter what, unconditionally, is something that is really hard to imagine, especially a, co- a country like the United States accepting. Even in Scandinavia, places like that, it's, it's a radi- radical idea, and it, it's not yet ready to be accepted, I don't think. 
But on the other hand, I think that it's almost inevitable that we're going to have to move in that direction. And it is an idea that's getting a lot of traction. You know, you may have heard Mark Zuckerberg talking about it, for example. There have been experiments around the world in Finland. They had a uh, an experiment for a little while with a universal basic income or a guaranteed income for some people, at least. It wasn't actually universal, but um, and they had they had pretty good success with that, although they've discontinued it now. But I do think it's an idea that's that's sort of poised to become much more mainstream. There's actually a, a presidential candidate, uh, Andrew Yang, who's running as a Democrat. He's not obviously one of the leading candidates, but he's gotten a lot of traction lately. He's he's actually you know getting a, quite a bit of of, of focus, and you're, he's actually qualified to be in the uh, the Democratic debates that are coming up. So I think that this idea of a guaranteed universal basic income is going to get a lot more exposure to the wider public um, just within the next few months. So I think that this is a very important idea for the future. What do you think the odds are that something like this would be a bloodless revolution versus what we've had in the past where there's storming the gates and much more? Yeah, I I mean, my feeling there's going to be some level of a crisis that, you know, we don't historically just do something this radical just because we sort of look ahead and we say, oh, look, there's this big disruption coming, so let's go ahead and smoothly adapt to it. That that doesn't seem to be the way history works. Uh, whether there's going to be blood on the streets or, or not is, is a question. I mean, one would hope in the United States at least that won't happen. I can imagine something much more violent happening, especially in other countries where things are less stable, where things are even more unequal, where where the safety net is even less existent. But I do think that there's likely to be some level of crisis. I mean, if you look at the safety net programs that we have now, uh, things like unemployment insurance, things like Social Security, for example, most of these programs came out of the experience of the Great Depression, right? Which was massively disruptive. It was a real crisis. I mean, I don't know if you want to say there was blood on the streets in the United States, at least, but it was a huge crisis, right? And I, it may take something at that level in order to get us to the point where we're politically and socially able to accept the idea of a basic income. But hopefully it won't be too bad, but I, I suspect it, it will be bad to some extent. What happens to immigration when Germany has a social basic income and France doesn't, or something similar, where we start to see those dynamics pop up? Yeah, I mean, that's a real issue. Um, one thing that, that I pointed out is that really any robust social safety net and certainly a universal basic income is really not compatible with open borders, right? So it is going to intersect with the immigration debate that we're having right now. And I, I mean, a lot of people on the left, the Democratic Party does seem to be sort of moving toward an open borders mentality, which I think is is really not sustainable or supportable. I think that, that, that a better solution is going to be to have some level of guaranteed income or basic income in countries throughout the world, right? And it will obviously be at different levels. And perhaps advanced countries will have to help developing countries do that or something. But the idea that that everyone can come to the United States and then we're going to have a basic income is obviously not not workable. I mean, that's, that's just not sustainable on any level. So um, we are going to have to have, at some point, pragmatic conversation about immigration and what exactly you know, we mean when we, when we talk about having a safety net in the United States and how that relates to, to immigration. Um, and that right now is a very, very divisive kind of explosive issue. So it's, it's kind of unfortunate, I think. 
How dystopian does it get as jobs start to go away as the effects of climate change start to nail people, especially in third world countries? Well, yeah, you know, it's, it's hard to say, but it's it's something that I certainly worry about. I mean, uh, certainly climate change, the news so far is not good. If we look at the the recent evidence, we see a lot of evidence that it could be even worse than what we were projecting um, a short time ago. Um, and that's obviously going to disproportionately impact the developing world. At the same time, when we have the impact of technology, which is also making things more unequal, perhaps eliminating jobs, it, it makes it harder and harder for people across the world to focus on the longer term future, something like climate change, when they're worried about losing their job here, they're worried about paying their rent this month. So as we see individual and family income insecurity potentially threatened, it gets harder and harder to really be focused on on an issue like climate change. So these things kind of intertwine. And, and my concern is that it could lead to a kind of perfect storm where, you know, we've got these trends kind of unfolding in parallel, and yet, in some ways, even, you know, exacerbating each other, accelerating each other. So it could, you know, really make things even worse. Definitely. That's what happens when you have an unstoppable force and an immovable object. Where do you see UBI getting the most traction and possibly running in the wild, so to speak, first? Uh, did you say in which country? I, I missed that part of your question. Yeah, which country? I mean, it's hard to say. One would think that European countries, especially Scandinavian countries, have already embrace the idea that, that government has responsibility to the population. They're much more comfortable with that. They already have a strong social safety net. And that's why you saw, for example, Finland experimenting with this. The Netherlands is also experimenting with the basic income. So it could develop there first. I think maybe a country like Japan might be another good choice for a basic income just because it's so homogenous. You don't have any, you don't have the group-based dynamics that you have in a country like United States where it makes it a bit harder. On the other hand, a country like China, it was completely authoritarian, right? The government can basically do whatever it wants with no pushback at all from anyone. So maybe it's going to happen first in an in a authoritarian country. So it's really hard to know. But I do think that wherever it happens, it will be kind of a model for the rest of the world when it happens in a place uh, on a national scale, because that's really never done, been done before. But again, I do think that it's kind of inevitable. And there is kind of a global movement toward this now. There are lots of organizations that are interested in basic income. And um, I do think it's just an incredibly important idea for the future. And it's going to take hold somewhere. And it'll be really interested, interesting to see where it happens first. How much of the basic income argument is just based off of, in essence, the Ponzi scheme of a GDP that always has to be growing? Is there another way we could do it? For instance, if you take any level of first world comfort in terms of what's being produced, the actual sustainability costs that go into that. It's impossible for something like that to be scaled up to a worldwide perspective without lighting the world on fire and smoking it into oblivion, so to speak. Is universal basic income trying to put a band-aid on something that is inevitably the incentives are designed to fail? You know, I, I don't think that a universal basic income is is necessarily tied directly to the idea of a traditional economic growth type focus. I mean, I think if you look at the stuff that, for example, Naomi Klein has talked about, right? She's very much against the whole idea of, of that. You've got the, 
advocates talking about a steady state economy that won't be dependent on economic growth. The problem is if, if you've got a steady state type economy where it's not growing, you're not creating enough jobs, right? That's going to be the first problem you're going to run into. And so you also, in that scenario, I think probably need something like a, a basic income. So it's something that people in that sphere have also talked about. So it's actually something that's kind of applicable in different scenarios. My own view of this is that I don't think we necessarily have to turn away from the idea of economic growth. What we do have to do is decouple economic growth from energy intensity and from the impact on the environment, right? And that's something that, that in, in countries like the US is actually happening already, right? Our, our economy has become a lot less energy intensive. Um, our economy now grows even as our dependence on, on climate or on um, fossil fuels, for example, has actually declined, right? So if we could find solutions that provide energy that is not climate intensive, if we can have economic growth that does not create the kind of consumer waste that we've been experiencing in the past, then I think that, that it's perfectly acceptable and, and, and desirable to have continued economic growth. We just decouple it from the negative impacts. And you can, you can imagine how that works if you have clean energy running computers and more of the economy becomes intangible, right? More of it becomes virtual. It becomes digital. Uh, it's not, you know, plastic stuff that we use and then throw away anymore. It just becomes digital ebooks, for example. And that whole scenario is not carbon intensive. Then you can imagine economic growth, you know, being able to continue indefinitely. But what's the po- what's the point? We're playing with paper money, anyways. What's the point? I guess. I guess. Kind of the question is, what level of automation and energy efficiency necessitates? almost purely socialist society. Because inevitably, you'll get to a point where capitalism cannot function from the over-efficiencies because you're giving people jobs to go home and do homework with 100 extra problems that's just busy work. Well, I mean, that's that's the point of the basic income, right? Is that you move away from having people do jobs. But why buy anything at that point? Well, why not? I mean, I, I mean... It, it's I kind think of, is that capitalism is sustainable as long as it creates things that people value, right? And no, it doesn't have to be tangible things. Who knows? It's going to be virtual reality experiences. It'll be whatever, but people will still want those things. I mean, I, I, I do. I'm a believer in the market economy, and I think that there are a number of very important incentives built into capitalism beyond the simple incentive to go and and work in a job. That's certainly one of the incentives that's there. And you and I might agree that that particular incentive needs to dissipate and maybe replaced with, with a basic income someday. But there are other important incentives built into capitalism, the incentive to innovate, right? The incentive to invest in innovation. These are all things that are much harder to figure out how you're going to do in a, in a socialist economy, whereas in a capitalist economy, they come naturally. And I think we want to continue to have innovation, right? Don't we want to have better technologies, better drugs? Don't we want medical advantages that make us more, or medical advances that make, make us more healthy? Don't we want innovations that allow us to explore space and, and um, you know, have all these continued breakthroughs? And I think capitalism and the market incentives are a big part of that. So I personally don't view getting rid of those incentives as a good thing. Okay, I'm playing devil's advocate in part. But I think a lot of what gets attributed to market-based incentives are more incentives in general, and that people, when they're passionate about certain problems, 
solve those problems without the necessity for a cash sum at the end of the rainbow. Yeah, I mean, it's not, I'm not talking about just paying a research scientist and giving them a salary. You're right. So if, you, if you gave everyone a, a basic income, there might be a lot of engineers and research scientists who would do what they're doing for free, sure. But it still takes huge capital investment to bring these technologies to realization, right? I mean, just an individual engineer that's being paid is not enough to bring the next phase of nanotechnology to realization, okay? That takes, that might take a trillion dollars in terms of investment, right? Where's that money coming from? And more importantly, what mechanism do you have to evaluate all the engineers that are coming up with ideas and choose which one is the best idea and make sure that that particular idea gets investment? That's what the market does. And the market is the most effective way that we know how to evaluate alternatives and make sure that investment flows to the best alternative, right? You, so, I mean, you could have a committee of some, you know, a government committee trying to do that, but I think history has shown pretty clearly that it's not as good as having the market do it. So I, I, I do think that there are good reasons to keep the market in place and, and have those incentives there. I definitely agree. I think as we get further along, things become more complicated, but that's, uh, that's another story. So speaking of purpose, what happens as we have more automation? Well, where do people find purpose? I mean, that's the other part of the the equation, right? Now, if you had something like a basic income, you take care of, of people's basic needs, you know, you give them an income. There, there are a couple of things to note there. At least initially, the basic income is not going to be sufficient for the vast majority of people, right? I mean, most proposals on, their, on the table are something on the order of $1,000 a month maybe even less than that. I think the experiment that Finland did was only something like 600 euros a month. So it's a, it's a pretty small amount. People, I mean, very few people would want to live on that, right? That's below the poverty level in the United States. So the idea of a basic income is you give people an absolute floor, you know, a, a minimal amount that, that will keep them hopefully off the street, but it's not enough to keep the vast majority of people satisfied. So people will still want to do more they will work if they can. They might work part-time. They might, might work full-time. Or they might do something entrepreneurial. They might start their own business, right? So I think it's really important to remember that that incentive is still there. And what's critically important is that a basic income does not create a disincentive to do more. And this is in contrast to the traditional kinds of safety net programs that we have now. So for example, if you get unemployment insurance, if you go out and look for a job and you find a job, even a low-paying one, then, of course, you will lose that unemployment insurance. And in many places, this actually creates a disincentive for people to get off the current poverty safety net programs. Um, the worst possible example of that in the United States is the Social Security Disability Program, which a lot of people get onto. And some people, of course, you know, do that in fraudulent ways. They're not really disabled, but they're desperate because they can't find a job. And so they get into the social security disability program. And once that happens, they can never work again. Because if you even look like you're able-bodied and you can work, then you risk losing both your income and your health care in the United States. So people, once they get into that, will never work again. That's very different from a universal basic income that is unconditional and everyone gets it. So if you get that minimum amount, you can go ahead and do something else. You can start your own business. You can work if you want to and earn even more. And so there's always an incentive there. And what it means is that people who at least try to be productive 
we'll always be better off than people that just stay at home and play video games. So I think that's really important to to note. But beyond that, we'll have to figure out other things as well. And one thing that I've proposed in my writing is that we might actually have a basic income that has some incentives built into it. So for example, if you enroll in school, then maybe you can get a higher basic income than if you just do nothing. Or if you go out and you work in the community, you volunteer, help other people, maybe you can get a somewhat higher basic income than if you do nothing. Um, and perhaps in those ways, we can actually build an incentive so that people can do productive things. And, and maybe that can at least in part help people move toward doing something that does provide that sense of purpose. But you know, I do think it's true that as it happens in the economy as it exists today, maybe most people or at least a whole lot of people get that sense of purpose, that sense of doing something important from their job, which happens to also be the thing that gives them an income. But it doesn't always have to be that way. Those things don't have to be coupled together, right? It's possible to get your income from one place and your sense of purpose, your sense that you're doing something important from somewhere else. So I think that's kind of the future that we probably need to look to. Especially because something like 40% of people feel their job has no purpose whatsoever. Exactly. And those, so those, uh, it's, that, it's that crazy. 40 people is, that 40% of people is not going to be upset if, you know, they lose this bullshit job, right? And, and get an income and then they can do something that actually is more meaningful. And, and also a lot of people might choose to do something like become an artist, right? I mean, you know, you always hear the term starving artist. Maybe in the future, it will be possible to be an artist and not starve, right? That you will actually have an income there and a lot of people will will find a lot of meaning in doing something artistic, right? And then they will, in their way, contribute to society, right? By by creating art. And I think that's that's important as well. Definitely the inspiration of creativity. So in terms of where you see us headed, I know you've written a bit about robo-taxes. I know you've written a bit about what Amazon's doing with workers and automation. What are you most worried about in those directions? And do you think something like that could possibly work, a robo-tax? Well, I think that we're going to have to, I mean, clearly, if we're going to have something like a basic income, you, you've got to pay for it, right? So the taxes have to come somewhere. I mean, I, I mean, I my own view has always been that it's going to be some combination of more progressive taxes on the wealthiest people who are, you know, disproportionately going to capture more of the income in, in, in large measure because they own the capital, right? And, and one thing that happens as a result of automation is that capital is going to capture more income and labor is going to get less, right? So you're going to have to tax that capital one way or another. And that may involve taxing the wealthiest people that own more capital or taxing companies like Amazon and Google that, that you know, are, are capturing more of the income. I, I wouldn't attempt, I don't think, to specifically tax robots because it's very hard, hard to define exactly what a robot is. Um, obviously, if it's in a factory and you can, it's something tangible, then it's easy to say, okay, there's a robot. But in most cases, I think what we think of as a robot is just going to be software. It's going to be artificial intelligence deployed somewhere. And it's going to be very complicated and difficult to figure out what to tax and what not to tax. Also, essentially taxing a robot or taxing AI is a tax on progress. And I, I, I don't think we want to do that. I think it's better to have a more simpler taxation scheme that doesn't specifically try to tax things that represent innovation. And the other thing is I think we need some form of consumption tax, maybe a value-added tax in the United States would be a good choice. That's something that most other countries, most other advanced countries at least have already. The US doesn't. So there's, there's a lot of potential there. A carbon tax would be another great way to raise some income for 
uh, you know, to fund the basic income. So I, I suspect it's a combination of taxation, but definitely we have to rethink our taxation scheme because right now we very heavily tax labor, right? So all of our safety net programs like healthcare and, and, uh, social security, retirement, they all come on the basis of pay- payroll taxes. And that's probably not very sustainable if a lot of jobs are going to go away or if, you know, wages are going to fall as a result of automation, right? We're going to have to rethink that taxation scheme. We could probably get rid of a fair number or a fair percentage of police departments and prisons as well, because when people have uh, enough income to live by, I imagine we'll find that crime goes way the hell down. That's cool. And of course, artificial intelligence will also be deployed in a way that enhances security, right? And that's another whole discussion and a whole trade-off we'll have to make. I mean, if you take a look at what's happening in China, um, it's becoming very, very Orwellian. But on the other hand, people there do feel quite secure. I mean, they, they let their children go out by themselves in a way that we wouldn't in the United States because they know everything is under surveillance. And so I think different societies are going to have to consider that trade-off and make different choices. And what do you think the end result of that will be? Are you scared of the slippery slope? It's, it's a real concern. I mean, I, you know, um, I definitely hope that we all won't have what they have in China where they have not only surveillance everywhere, but also a, an emerging, what they call a social ranking system where everyone, you're, you're going to get like five stars or one star, like an Amazon, right? Depending on your behavior. And literally you are tracked everywhere. So if you, for example, buy too much alcohol, the government will know that and you'll get downgraded, right? Um, obviously, if you do anything that the, the government doesn't approve of politically in terms of the opinions you post online or something, you'll get downgraded for that. And then if your rating is low enough, you can't buy plane tickets and, and things like that. So it's really very dystopian and controlling. And yeah, it's going to be extraordinarily powerful um, in terms of what the government is doing there. So hopefully we never see anything like that in the West, but we are definitely seeing cameras in more and more places. Um, and people will have different attitudes towards that, right? It will keep us in a sense safer, but it will also invade our privacy. And I I don't know what the ultimate outcome of that is, but um, it, it intersects with a lot of other things. You know, in the United States, we, we can't control guns, right? People have got guns. So maybe one response to that is going to, okay, let's have a, a camera and, and surveillance everywhere. So that's a choice that the public is going to have to make. How right? much of that is just because we have so much? I feel like if you were to take a slice of humanity, the US has most of the effed up people in terms of serial killers and crime. And a lot of that happening, it happens more here, and it certainly gets reported about more here. How much of that is just something that's, whether a product of culture or a product of something else, seemingly broken with our Well, society? I mean, you know, to, to the extent that people are crazy, psychotic, and will do crazy things, I think that that's a, that's, that's a normal distribution, and they exist in every country. It's just that in the United States... You know, access to to weapons is a lot more seamless than it is in most most places, right? So that's why you see more gun crime here. Um, so SSRIs, right? So um, I I think you know it's a problem everywhere. It's a particular problem in the United States because of you know mostly because of our gun culture and and so forth. And and we will have to find our own solutions to that. I mean, that's obviously the subject of political debate. What technologies are you most worried about outside of AI and why? 
uh, beyond AI, I would say things in the genetic engineering space, right? I mean, one thing that, that artificial intelligence and the kind of stuff you're seeing with, uh, you know, synthetic biology and, and, and gene sen- sequencing and so forth is that there's a pretty low barrier to entry, right? It's the kind of thing that anyone can conceivably do in their base basement. So in the future, we'll worry about on the AI, AI side, maybe people building autonomous drones or something is something that, you know, you can buy the drones that exist today and maybe re-engineer them to be autonomous and use them in, in, you know, basically as weapons. You can imagine a very small group of people doing that. You can also imagine a small group of people getting ahead, getting a hold of um, biotechnology, you know, and, and, and doing, you know, engineering a virus or something like that, right? So this is really scary. And what we're seeing is that, you know, these are essentially things that could be very disruptive, almost potentially mass, mass, you know, weapons of mass disruption, right? And you don't need to be a government or a nation state in order to have the resources to do that anymore. You know, it's, it's something that, that a very small group of people could do. And so that's pretty scary. And yet every technology is a double-edged sword. What about those or what about other technologies? Which are you most optimistic about in terms of ability to solve humanity's largest problems? Well, I think artificial intelligence really is going to be the ultimate tool for that. I mean, there's a quote I always give from Demis Hassabis, who's the CEO of DeepMind, right? Uh, you know, Google's division in London that, that created the AlphaGo system and is really kind of on the leading edge of sort of the, the race to artificial general intelligence. And what, what Demis always says is that he's trying to solve the problem of intelligence or artificial intelligence and then use that to solve everything else. And that's, I think, literally what we're talking about. We can build something that is fundamentally, at least in some ways, beyond human intelligence, a new form of intelligence in the universe that will go beyond what human beings are capable of and allow us there thereby to solve the biggest problems we face. And that will involve or will include things like climate change, poverty, clean energy, and so forth. I mean, if you think about it, everything that we have in civilization today is the product of human ingenuity, right? Human innovation, human intelligence. Artificial intelligence is all about taking that to the next level, going beyond that, amplifying that in a way that we've never seen before. And therefore, we ought to be able to create innovation really across the board that is unprecedented. And I think that's the great promise of, of artificial intelligence, that it will become the most powerful tool we have at our disposable, disposal for solving these issues. And that's a belief along a lot of technologists. Let's play devil's advocate. How much of that is techno-optimism? And how much of that is plausibly ignorance in terms of the scope of the problems? A lot of times I see AI especially as the panacea of all problem. Uh, that gets as it's paraded around among a lot of a lot of especially people in the space. How much of that do you worry is people overhyping, overselling, or oversimplifying a problem? Well, I mean, there's definitely hype out there, and there are things that I would consider to be you know really hyped up techno optimism. I mean, you know, you listen some of the stuff Ray Kurzweil talks about in terms of the singularity, and and especially his focus on living forever. Um, there's there's a lot of people that really believe they're never going to die now, quite a few. Um, I, I, you know, I think that's going over the top, right? So, I, I mean, you can't say that's inconceivable, but I, it's certainly not something that I'm banking on. 
So I think, of course, you can be pragmatic in terms of your expectations. But I, I do think that, that it is true that artificial intelligence is something that we should absolutely push and expect will become a vitally important part of how we solve problems in the future. I mean, I do absolutely believe that if you look at a problem like climate change, for example, I, I think our ability to adapt to that ultimately is going to be all about innovation. I mean, you can say, okay, you know, it's really, it's really a coordination problem. What we need to do is we need to get all the governments throughout the world to agree to limit carbon emissions. And that's what's going to solve the problem. And I say, okay, fine, but we haven't done that. I mean, you know, there's just no evidence whatsoever that it's happening. There is no evidence that democracies will vote to dramatically limit, you know, what, what our personal way of lives are going to look like. People in democracies will not vote for dramatic personal sacrifice. Um, it is also true that the democratic you know, advanced democratic countries, which would be the United States and Europe is only maybe, I, I think, less than a third of carbon emissions. And most of it now is in the developing world. So the, the, the idea that we're going to solve the problem through coordination and, and, and placing limits on carbon emissions, I think I'm quite skeptical of that. I think our best chance is through innovation, you know, that, that if we really want to have a hope of limiting carbon emissions, our best solution is to come up with better sources of energy and, and other innovations that will allow us to do that. And I think that artificial intelligence is one of the best tools we have to do that. I bring it up because a lot of times when you've got a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So for bio experts, they always have the perfect bio solution. For quantum computing experts, everything is going to be solved with quantum computing. So sometimes, sometimes I like to push back on some of that stuff. Right. And not only computing is very much in its infancy who knows what's going to happen? I mean, maybe it will be a powerful tool, but it's certainly to assume that will be the case is crazy, right? We, we don't know that. So, you know, I think anyone that says with certainty that these solutions are going to arise is, is, is going too far. But I do think that there's reason for optimism and that absolutely we should be focusing on, on pushing these innovations forward because there's every reason to believe that, that they are going to be important tools. What is the cutting edge of robotics today? What's the most exciting stuff you're seeing? Well, I mean, you, you know, the robotics is not, it's not one thing, right? It's lots of things. Um, self-driving cars is certainly one area. And I think that we will see self-driving cars arrive, but I do think it may take a little longer than some of the most optimistic projections out there. I mean, that you hear people talking about five years until we have true autonomous cars that can you know, go anywhere. I, I don't think that's going to happen. It's going to be much longer than that, maybe 15, 20 years. But we might have much more limited autonomous systems sooner than that. The kinds of robots you see in warehouses are developing very rapidly. I think that the real disruptive innovations that we're going to see in the near terms are going to be those that are in very controlled environments like warehouses, where things are relatively predictable. I think you're going to see the robots in Amazon warehouses, for example, get a lot more capable and dexterous, and that's going to make those environments a lot less um, labor intensive. And that could be very disruptive in terms of the job market. On the other hand, you know, robots in homes that really do useful things, humanoid robots that can do things flexibly and so forth. I just think that that's much further out. These are really tough challenges. And it's going to take a lot longer before we really see those kinds of innovations. So I think we're going to see you know, robots in elder care, for example, taking care of older people. That's a huge market. One of the most important applications of robots 
But what we're going to see there are really specialized applications that can do maybe help with mobility, help elder people get around, and or or robots in nursing care homes that can help lift older people and stuff like that. You know, a general purpose robot that can take care of an older person is still science fiction. It's way in the future. So the real innovations that we're going to see for the foreseeable future are specialized, and they're going to be in environments that are relatively controlled, predictable, and, and have lots of data. So places like warehouses. How worried about you are the fact that, by the fact that right now, most AI is relatively a black box, goes based off of the incentives we give it, and oftentimes optimizes to something that we didn't intend. For instance, Facebook wants to keep you on the site, and eventually we help get Trump elected. We don't really see these issues happening until they're so socially ingrained and so optimized that they're almost, for lack of a better term, unstoppable. Well, I mean, there's a big... Uh, a lot of effort in artificial intelligence now regarding transparency, regarding building systems that are more explainable. And, and the, the, the fact that the matter is it depends on the application. In some applications of artificial intelligence, it is critically important that you have that transparency. You understand exactly how the system is arriving at its decisions and why it's doing that. You know, obvious examples are anything involving the criminal justice system, where you're using algorithms to decide if people are being paroled or not, for example. You need to understand how the system is coming at to that decision so you can make sure that it's not biased, for example, and so forth. In medicine, for example, you want to understand how, how systems are arriving at decisions and so forth. In other applications, maybe just optimizing what's happening in a business somewhere, maybe it's not so important. So, you know, people, you shouldn't go overboard with, with this transparency issue. There are plenty of applications where maybe it's not that important. But definitely there is um, a focus on this now. And I think it's something that, that ultimately will be solved, right? I mean, I think that, that we will have systems that, that can explain themselves. And uh, uh, so it's, it's not something that I worry about too much. I think that, that um, it's a technical issue that, that we'll have a solution to it. What about the flip side, bias? I know in your book, Architects of Intelligence, you interviewed some of the top AI leaders. How do we deal with the problems of bias? And is it even plausible given the bias built into society? Well, the, the, the general problem that arises is not that anyone designs an algorithm to be biased, but that the, the algorithms are trained on data and the data is often produced by people, right? And people, of course, are biased, right? But I think there's there's really a hopeful note to this. I mean, nearly everyone I talk to in architects of intelligence is aware of this issue. Many of them are directly working on it. And 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 the hopeful note is that once you understand this issue, a, a, you can correct from it for it in an algorithm, right? And it's probably a lot easier to fix this in an AI algorithm than it is in a human being, right? I mean, it's really hard to correct the human brain for for intrinsic forms of bias. So I think that. In the future, what we'll see is that certain decisions are put more in the hands of algorithms, and that might include, you know, hiring decisions, screening rev- resumes, and things like this. Even though there have been cases that we have seen right now, initially, where bias has been found, in the future we may see the exact opposite, where bias is actually corrected for in the algorithm, and we actually see a less bias, more equitable result than we might see if you had human beings doing that same job. So I think there is actually reason to be very optimistic going forward. 
So your Tesla might crash and kill you, but it's much less than the overall number of deaths happening from human drivers, essentially. will be much better than humans with artificial intelligence. Sure. I, I mean, you know, if you look at self-driving cars, people worry about the trolley problem and things like that, where, where it has to choose between killing this person or that person. But that's extraordinarily unlikely and rare. And, and remember that if that situation were to ever occur with a human driver, the human driver would have to make the same decision, right? And, and people are not morally perfect either, either. That's for sure. Okay. I mean, you know, you can write that volumes, books and books and books on people's moral failings, right? So to, to assume that a machine or an algorithm is, is somehow less ethical or moral than a human being is always, it seems to me, not a very good assumption. And, and this comes into play especially in the military sector, right, where we talk about autonomous weapons and stuff like that, where a machine might ultimately make a choice of whether to shoot someone or not. But I can imagine scenarios where it actually makes sense to do that and where doing that actually saves lives. So I think that, you know, the, the, these ethical issues are, you know, they're, they're important debate. I, I mean, just to take an obvious example, consider the case of policing, right? Imagine you had an autonomous police robot. First of all, that robot could afford to shoot second, right? It probably doesn't care if someone shoots at it first. So that right there could save a lot of lives. And if the robot is able to disable someone without killing them, that that makes it even better, right? So, I mean, there, there are many, many opportunities to use autonomous weapons or, or robots in ways that could actually save human lives rather than taking them. So I think this is a very, very complex debate. I think so as well. Yet with lethal autonomous robots, it's one of those things where you can always come up with a what if, but the what if that describe that create, for instance, 9-11, we had a terrible tragedy in the US. But because of that, we more or less moved into a police state. Not, I mean, not entirely, but moved much further towards a police state with each successive president. Is, is there the, is there the worry that by having things like this by having the possibility of an autonomous weapon saving a life going to lead to the creation where autonomous weapons take more lives because of the ease of going to war or because of the oh shit i clicked the wrong button and accidentally launched the nuke or the the submarine pilot or whatever the w proper word is from the cuban missile crisis that decided not to launch on the russian side yeah i mean there are lots of things to debate and I think there are two kinds of spheres where you worry about autonomous weapons. One is sort of what you might, I don't know if legitimate is the right word, but, but used by, by militaries, right? By like the U.S. military and other militaries in, in informal conflicts. And, and, you know, it should be noted that the U.S. military right now has stated unambiguously that they will not do this. This is not their plan. They will not take human beings out of the loop. Now, whether that promise can be kept indefinitely, I really don't know. I mean, obviously, if the Russians build fully autonomous weapons, then I, it seems to me that, we, that other militaries would have no choice but to respond to that because there's going to be an enormous advantage to that in terms of speed, the ability to react quickly. So autonomous weapons, once they are built, would have a huge advantage on a battlefield, I think. So at that point, it's probably all bets are off. So if those weapons do come into being, then as you say, there are many debates you could have. I mean, maybe it makes us easy to go to war, right? You know, people will say it's bad enough now that 
you know, most of the upper middle class in the United States does not send its kids to be in the military, right? In our volunteer military. So it's already possible for our elites to make a choice to go to war without their own kids being put in harm's way. If in the future, you know, no, no 18 year olds are going to war, it's just robots. And of course, as you say, it's even easier, right? So this is a problem. So that's one thing to consider. There is a debate in the United Nations about banning autonomous weapons completely. Many people are very supportive of that. And that's a debate that's going to go on, I think. But the second thing that, that comes up with these weapons is outside of their use in the form of military. What really frightens a lot of people is the idea that autonomous weapons not only will be, be built and used by militaries, but would be available beyond that. So, in, so imagine you could go to an arms dealer, the same kinds of people that sell machine guns in Africa or something, and purchase these autonomous weapons, you know, autonomous drones, and, and, and so that then they would be available to all kinds of terrorists and non-state actors and all of that. That would be a very, very frightening scenario. And so I think that's one of the things that, that we would definitely like to prevent happening. And that's a good reason to have a ban in the United Nations. One of the people I interviewed in my book, Architects of Intelligence, uh, Stuart Russell, who's a professor at UC Berkeley, has a, he created a video that actually illustrates, you know, how to be, you know, you know, the fears that we should have about autonomous weapons. It's called Slaughterbots. And you can watch that. And it's really quite a terrifying video. Yeah, it's one of those things where you could imagine an Uber for hit robots where you have a blockchain and people are paying everything anonymously. It's uh it's not a it's not a pretty picture. I think lethal autonomous robots are one of those technologies where once you cross over you can't go back. Yeah, it would be um very, very difficult to defend ourselves against um those if they became widespread. So it is quite scary. So let's find a happy note to end on. What's been the most positive experience in your life in the last week or two? What's something that's got you interested, excited, or amped up about life, the world, and where we're headed? Wow. Um, I'm not sure about in the last week. I'll just say in general that, that I go around a lot talking about this issue. I talk to all kinds of groups, and um, I, I, you know, I get, I'm very optimistic by the response I, I get. I think that People are genuinely engaged with this issue, with, with the future impact of technology. People clearly care about it. They care about the potential for rising inequality as a result of technology. And at the same time, they're optimistic about the technology. So I am very optimistic that people, as they become aware of these issues, um, that we will find a way to ultimately leverage all of this advancing technology on behalf of everyone, you know, at every level of our society in a positive way so that it really becomes a tool to advance humanity and that we will find a way to to sort of limit the downsides of this and 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 do what we need to do to make sure that that we have a positive outcome. And that's why we dive into the dystopian sometimes, guys, because by having these type of conversations, we get these ideas out there, people think about them, they come up with better solutions, and we avoid an inevitable slope of not knowing where we were headed to hopefully build a world we'd more like to live in. Thanks for coming on today, Martin. What is one thing you would want to leave people with, a quote, a call to action, before you tell them where to find you? I'll leave just a quote I, I cited from Demis Hassabis, which is, you know, artificial, you know, first solve artificial intelligence and then solve everything else. Don't forget that that is the promise of the technology. That's what we're striving for. That's why you should support the technology. 
and but also just keep in mind that you should have your eyes open that this also will certainly generate inequality and it will come with lots of risks and we all need to engage in a um, a public conversation about what this technology means for the future. One small step for man, one giant leap for Bezos and his little C-3PO. Thanks for coming on today, Martin. This has been a fun one. Where's the best place for people to find you and learn a little bit more about you, your work, and what you do? Well, I'm on Twitter at uh, mfordfuture, so you can find me there. And also, I've got a a website with actually the same thing, mfordfuture.com. So those are the best two places. Check it out. Martin's got some awesome books, obviously some awesome perspectives. This has been fun. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me. And thanks for tuning in, guys. Hope you guys have enjoyed this. If you have, have an awesome day. Leave a review in Apple Podcasts, somewhere to help the show, or spread the word. Those are the greatest compliments that you can give us. And now, we'll talk to you guys again soon. Cheers. I used to run an e-commerce company, and it was a hassle always having to ship stuff, sending things into Amazon or to customers. Here's a better way. Our show sponsor, Send Pro Online by Pitney Bowes. It's a way for you to save time and money by printing postage, by printing labels direct from your desk. For as little as $4.99 a month, you can save money with their rates and get access to a free 10-pound scale so you can save money on the actual amount you'll be shipping as well, plus a free 30-day trial. It's pretty cool. I think it's something that a lot of you guys will benefit from, especially if you're running an e-commerce company. If you go to pb.com slash angel, you can find out more details, get that free 30-day trial, and the free 10-pound scale to get started. Again, that's pb.com slash angel for the right way to ship. Thanks for listening to The Syndicate, the podcast where angel investors and VCs go off the cuff and discuss the ins and outs of the venture ecosystem. We're here to share the tips and tricks of the best in the business, because startups and tech make the pie bigger. To learn more about us and what we do, visit thesyndicate.vc. And to join our syndicate on AngelList, just go to thesyndicate.vc slash join and get access to some of the best startup deals. This has been another episode of The Syndicate. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you guys again next week.